Okay, today we come to the second in the three suttas that feature Vachagota. This is a very deep and difficult sutta, which is called the Agi Vachagota Sutta, the discourse to Vachagota on fire, or the simile of the fire. And this discourse opens when the Blessed One was living in Anathapindika's monastery, Jeta's grove at Sabati. And then the same wanderer Vachagota, who in the previous sutta, I think, had met the Buddha, was it at Vesali? Now he's, they're both together in Sabati. And so when Vachagota hears that the Buddha is living in the uh, Jeta's grove, then he goes there to meet him. And after they exchange greetings, then he begins asking him a number of the speculative or metaphysical questions that were constantly being debated by all of the philosophers and ascetics during the Buddha's time. We come across these same questions when we discuss the Malankya Buddha Sutta. This is when the Buddha's disciple, a monk called Malankya Buddha, when he's sitting in meditation one day, he starts pondering over these questions and he comes to the Buddha and says, Venerable Sir, if you don't give me an answer to these questions, I'm going to leave your Sangha and go join some other order. And then the Buddha answers, Malankyaputta with the simile of the man shot by the poisoned arrow and says that this man will die before he lets this man won't let the surgeon remove the arrow until he gets the answer about who was what was the name of the man who shot him, what was his plan, what kind of arrow he used, what kind of bow he used, and so on. In that sutta, the Buddha was discussing these questions with a disciple of his who had given the Buddha an ultimatum. Either you answer me or I leave you. And so the Buddha had to be very firm and very stern with that disciple. <coughs> but now, Bhachakota is not yet a disciple of the Buddha and he's asking these questions out of his own speculative curiosity not laying down some kind of set, set of terms or an ultimatum to the Buddha. And so the Buddha handles Vachagota in a much gentler way than he did Malankya Buddha. So Vachagota says first, how is it, Master Gotama? Does Master Gotama hold the view? The world is eternal. Only this is true, anything else is wrong or false. And the Buddha says, No, Vachagota, I do not hold that view. Then Vachagota goes through, we won't read each passage, but just take the views. Okay, the second, the view that the world is not eternal. Okay, so this is the antimony or two views about the time extent of the world eternal or non-eternal. Then the next pair of questions is about the physical dimensions of the world. Is the world finite or infinite? Next pair of questions is about the relationship between the so-called jiva or soul and the body. Are the soul and the body the same or are they different? And the Buddha says that he does not accept either of those views. And then Vachagota comes to the four questions about the state of the enlightened one, the liberated one, after death. Does the liberated one, the Tathagata, exist after death? Does he not exist after death? Does he both exist and not exist after death? Does he neither exist nor not exist after death? 
does Master Gotama hold any of these views? And then the Buddha replies, I do not hold any of these views. And when the Buddha replies in this way, then Vatya Gota is bewildered because all the other, when he, he would travel from one town to another, from one park to another, always asking the different ascetics and recluses about their philosophical views. And each one would say, I hold such and such a view. And then maybe Bhattacharya will say, <laughs> well, this philosopher holds that view, exactly the opposite. What do you say about that? And then <laughs> the philosopher that he's speaking to will start giving all sorts of arguments against the other view. <laughs> then later Bhattacharya would go and meet the person who holds the opposite view, and then he will give arguments against the first view. And in this way, Bhattacharya is completely bewildered because all of these thinkers are all advancing these arguments in support of their views. And now when he comes to the Buddha, who he ex- expects to be an enlightened one to know the answers to all the questions, and the Buddha says, I do not hold any of these views. <coughs> and so Bhattacharya says, how is it then, Master Gautama? What is the explanation? When Master Gautama is asked each of these ten questions, and in the Pali he actually repeats the ten questions, when he's asked these ten questions, he replies, I do not hold that view. What danger does Master Gautama see that he does not take up any of these speculative views? any of these types of views. Okay, and then the Buddha replies, Bhatcha, the view that the world is eternal, this is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views a contortion of views. It's like a twist of the mind. It's a vacillation of views. Just a shaking back and forth of the mind. A fetter of views. It is beset by suffering, by vexation, by despair, and by fever. And it does not lead to dispassion, to fading away, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. And the same is repeated for each of the other nine views. All of them, the Buddha says, are a thicket of views, and so on, a fetter of views, beset by suffering, and they do not lead to dispassion, to fading away, to cessation, to peace, direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. Seeing this danger, I do not take up any of these types of views. So here we get the Buddha giving we might say three basic reasons why he does not present these views. The three reasons are closely interlinked. First, that each of these speculative views is a kind of just a blind jungle or just a fetter of the mind. And that when one gets attached to a view, then one, or when one adopts a view, then one becomes attached to it and one starts clinging to it. When one clings to a view, then one feels compelled to argue against people who hold different views. And so one gets involved into conflict and then one feels compelled to convert other people to adopt your view. We find this with people who hold to dogmatic religious beliefs. Somebody becomes a fundamentalist Christian and they think they have to make everybody else 
<laughs> accept Christ as their personal savior, and then they will have to sort of just completely overwhelm the person with arguments, pointing to the Bible, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. Even there are some followers of schools of Buddhism in Japan, there's one school called the Nichiren school. They're very fanatical, just almost like the Christian, like the fundamentalist Christians. They say the followers of the other Buddha schools are going to hell. In Japan there are many, many different Buddha schools which are generally quite tolerant of each other. But this one school, the Nichiren school, says that our teaching, our sect has the true teaching only. All the other sects are just damned to hell or to blindness and <laughs> they are left out of the Buddha's compassion. <laughs> okay, so when one holds any type of view, then one clings to it very strongly and one feels one's whole identity becomes invested in that view. And so one can tolerate any criticism of the view and one has to, can't even tolerate any dissent from the view. One has to make everybody accept one's point of view. So in that way this view becomes a kind of contortion or fetter of the mind. And then inevitably it happens that not everybody accepts one's point of view. And so one comes into conflict with others who hold different views and one when is unable to persuade them, or unable to convert them, then one experiences suffering and frustration, vexation. One becomes excited or depressed. So this is the second, you say, the second reason the Buddha gives here for rejecting this adherence to views. That these views are beset by suffering, by vexation, by despair, by fever. And then the third reason which is given is that to adopt these views doesn't lead to enlightenment and to nibbana. When one holds these views, then one just becomes satisfied and thinks, I have the truth, I know the answers to all of the big questions, and one doesn't have any reason for practicing the path that leads to enlightenment, to Nibbana. And so in the Buddha's teaching, even though we have what we call Samaditi, right view, but if we understand right view properly, we don't make it into an object of clinging, which we use to get involved in arguments with other people, saying, you have to accept the law of karma, you have to accept the Four Noble Truths, you have to accept the Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta, and one doesn't try to convert other people to this view, even though Buddha has tried to propagate the Dhamma, but this is for the purpose of getting people to understand the true way and to practice for their own welfare and happiness but it's not for converting people so they will say, I am a Buddhist, I accept <laughs> the law of karma, the Four Noble Truths. And the purpose of right view is to use as a tool or instrument for cultivating the whole Noble Eightfold Path in order to reach enlightenment and Nibbana. It's not for settling back and say, I have the right view, therefore I'm assured of gaining enlightenment. But when one has right view, then one has to practice all the other seven factors of the path. That's why the Buddha says that he teaches the Dhamma with the simile of the raft. But if you have the raft, you don't sit back on the raft and say, this is quite a wonderful, <laughs> quite a wonderful vessel that I have here. Um, let me just paint it beautifully and put flags on it and decorate it with gems and inlay it with gold. But if one is going to use the raft the way it should be used, then you put it into the water and you paddle across the stream. And so the Dhamma 
should function in the same way. Okay, so... Okay, so now the Buddha, this is the end of paragraph 14, he's shown these dangers because of which he does not take up any type of view. Okay, then Bhatcha asks, does Master Gotama hold any type of view at all? And then the Buddha says, Bhatcha, type of view is something which has been put away by the Tathagata. The Pali word here is Dittigata, which means literally going to view or adopting a view, we can say. The adopting of a view is something which has been put away by the Tathagata. For the Tathagata Bhatcha has seen this. And here we have something that is clear in Pali, but it doesn't show up so clearly in English. The word for view in Pali is ditti. And when the Buddha says the Tathagata has seen this, then the word he used, he uses is dikta. So he's contrasting the views of the other recluses who don't see for themselves, but they hold the views precisely because they don't see for themselves. So they have to hold these opinions or theories, these speculations. But the Buddha, the enlightened one, has seen for himself, so he doesn't have to hold any types of views. He is one who is, you say, such a dita, who has seen the truth, therefore he can reject ditti, views about the truth. And what is it that the Tathagata has seen? He's seen such is rupa, material form, such its origination, such its disappearance or fading away, such as feeling, perception, the mental formation, consciousness, such its origin, such its disappearance or passing away. Thus, what the Tathagata has seen is the true nature of the five aggregates and the arising and passing away of the five aggregates. And therefore, the Buddha goes on, therefore I say, with the destruction, fading away, cessation, giving up, and relinquishing of all conceivings, all excogitations, all eye-making, mind-making, and the underlying tendency to conceive, the Tathagata is liberated through not clinging. This is very, very profound sentence. <laughs> Okay, let us take these terms one by one. We have all conceivings. So the word that's rendered here, conceivings in Pali, is manyana. Manyana, it's like imagining, or almost you could say almost like false thinking or imaginary thinking and it's thinking in terms that are based on false views 
for a person craving conceit and wrongdoing. So it's all cons- all thinking which revolves around the ideas of I, mine, and myself. And all excogitations, I'm not sure, I didn't look up the Pali, but I think it's mantita. This basically means the same thing. That the word mantita is literally a stirring up or disturbance of the mind. So the Buddha uses this word disturbed thinking, we could say. Which basically is the same thing, the same meaning as manyana, this imaginary thinking. And then all eye-making, ahankara, that is thinking and feeling and experiencing in terms of I, mama, 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 mama this, mama that. Making the I, the center of the universe and then evaluating everything in relation to the I. I am good, I am the best, I am inferior, I am equal. So all this thinking in terms of I, I am this. Then Mamankara is thinking in terms of mind. Mage, Mage Gedra, Mage Kuta. <laughs> so this is always fabricating this notion that this is mine, that is mine. I want to gain this, so that will become mine. And then the underlying tendency to conceit that is thinking, I am better, I am inferior, I am equal, I am this, I am that, very similar to ahankara. But usually they explain in the commentaries that ahankara is the manifestation of wrong view holding the view about myself as this, myself as that. Mamankara is the manifestation of craving, desiring to get possession, attachment to one's possession. And Mananusya, This is the latent tendency to conceit, the manifestation of conceit. And so all of these terms, manyana, mantita, ahankara, mamankara, mananusya, they all are thinking and experiencing and judging things from the standpoint of the notions I am, this is mine and myself. <coughs> and what do these notions of mine, I, and myself refer to? What do they refer to always? The five aggregates, the Panchupadana Kanda. So whenever one is thinking, I am this, I am that, this is mine, or this is myself, it's always referring to these five aggregates, either this internal, personal five aggregates, or the external five aggregates. And so all these ideas of mine, I, and self are imaginary notions, false notions that arise 
on the basis of the five aggregates. And they refer always to the five aggregates. And because one thinks of the five aggregates in this way, then one starts building up views about the five aggregates, about whether the world is eternal, not eternal, infinite, finite, whether the soul is the same as the body, different from the body, whether the Tathagata exists after not, exists after death or not, and so on. <coughs> and so all of those views arise for those who do not see and understand the true nature of the five aggregates. But for one who has seen the real nature of the five aggregates, who has seen form, feeling, perception, the mental formations and consciousness, and who has seen these as just impermanent processes which arise and pass away, which originate through causes and cease with the cessation of their causes. When one sees and understands this, then all these views and ideas about mine, I, and myself are given up and destroyed. And so therefore, the, that's why the Buddha says, therefore, I say, with the destruction fading away, cessation, giving up and relinquishing of all these conceiving and so on, the Tathagata is liberated through not clinging. He has seen the real nature of the five aggregates. He gives up all of these views and deluded thoughts about the five aggregates and he no longer clings to these five aggregates as being mine, I, myself. And therefore he is completely liberated in mind. Okay, but... <laughs> now Vajagota is not really satisfied and so he tries to, in a way, get around the Buddha by asking the same four set of four questions that he asked before, but just changing the wording a little bit. He says, now when a bhikkhu's mind is liberated thus, Master Gotama, does he reappear after death, or is he reborn? Upapajati, is he reborn? So instead of saying, does he exist after death, he now asks, does he, is he reborn after death? And then the Buddha says, to say that he is reborn, this does not apply. Okay, then, Bhakti says, then is it the case that he is not reborn? Then the Buddha says, to say that he does not, that he is not reborn, that he is, does not reappear, this does not apply. Then he both reappears and does not reappear. In other words, he is both reborn and not reborn. The Buddha says, to say he both reappears and does not reappear, this does not apply. Then Bhatcha asks, then is it the case that he is neither reappears nor does not reappear? And the Buddha says, to say that he neither reappears nor does not reappear, this does not apply. Okay, now maybe we can raise the question, why doesn't the Buddha, first let's ask what actually do these four questions mean 
and why does the Buddha reject them? First, the question, in fact, it seems a little bit contradictory because we know that the Buddha says that the enlightened one, the Arahant, is not reborn. He's reached the end of samsara, there's no more rebirth. So why here is he rejecting all of these four alternatives instead of giving a simple, straightforward answer and saying that the liberated one is not reborn? I think the answer to this question is because well, to understand the, the Buddha's approach to this question we have to realize that the questions are all coming from somebody who has a very deep-rooted clinging to the idea of a true self, a really existing self. And so he's not yet able to understand the Buddha's teaching of anatta, and if the Buddha were to give an explanation in terms of anatta, then he would be confused and wouldn't be able to grasp it. And so when Vacha asks, is the liberated one reborn after death? He's thinking in terms of some kind of eternal self. Is there a kind of permanent, eternal soul or self which will continue on after death in some kind of transcendental domain, either like a heavenly world or some inconceivable sphere, but remaining as an eternal self. In other words, this question comes from the standpoint of eternalism, the Sasatavada. And so the Buddha says to say that he reappears or is reborn, this does not apply because there is no eternal self. The second question is also framed in terms of a enduring self, but not a permanent eternal self. This is the question which comes from the standpoint of what's called Uchedavada, which means the annihilationist view. This is the view that there is a self which comes into existence at birth and then perishes at death. And so this is a view like that of the materialists who hold that the person consists only of the material body and then at death the material body is destroyed and that is the extinction of the self. And so when Vachagota asks that question, this question is coming from the viewpoint of annihilationism. And the Buddha says, in that case, to say he is not reborn, that he does not reappear, this does not apply. But the commentary says that from the standpoint of the Dhamma, from the standpoint of right view, we would say that <laughs> the liberated one is not reborn. But the Buddha rejects that alternative here because the question presupposes the idea of some kind of lasting but impermanent self. Okay, the third question that he is both reborn and is not reborn to us it might seem like a self-contradictory question but this would be the view of some of the speculative thinkers who try to adopt what they call a syncretic position that is combining the best features of eternalism and of annihilationism I think the Jains were the ones who were quite prominent in this respect they would hold that there is an eternal self or soul distinct from the body and from one angle we could say that the liberated one is reborn because his self continues to exist after death. 
even though it's not reborn in samsara, but the self continues to exist in some kind of celestial or divine realm. But the body and the mind, the normal mind, that ceases with the death of the liberated one. So in that respect, we could say that he is not reborn. So this is an attempt to combine a view of rebirth, rebirth of the soul or the continuation of the soul in eternity with no rebirth, the extinction or death of the body and the ordinary mind. Okay, then the fourth position that the Buddha is rejecting, this is the position he neither reappears nor does not reappear. He is not reborn, nor it's neither the case that he is reborn nor that he is not reborn. Okay, this is the position of the skeptic or the cynic the agnostics, those who held that it's impossible for us to know with certainty either that an enlightened one is reborn or that he is not reborn. These philosophers, they would develop arguments if somebody says the enlightened one is reborn after death, then they have arguments, very powerful arguments to prove that he can't be reborn after death. But then if they meet an annihilationist who says the enlightened one is not reborn after death, then they have arguments to prove that we cannot claim that the enlightened one is not reborn after death. And so these people, they refuse to take any definite stand but will just go on arguing against all positions. And yet they don't have any kind of real path of practice to liberation. Their whole aim is just to argue against every doctrine, every theory. Okay, but the Buddha doesn't give such nice explanations the way I do, <laughs> since he's trying to really knock down Vajagota's logical mind in order to awaken Vajagota to make him receptive to the truth. And so when he refuses to answer in terms of these four alternatives, then Vajagota says in paragraph 17, he says, when Master Gotama is asked these four questions, he replies, that does not apply, that does not apply, that does not apply, that does not apply. Here I have fallen into bewilderment, Master Gotama. Here I have fallen into confusion. And the measure of confidence that I had gained through our previous conversations, that has now disappeared. It seems now Vachagota is on the point of just almost intellectual despair. And then the Buddha says to him that it is enough or quite fitting for you to be bewildered. It is quite enough or fitting for you to become confused. For this Dhamma Vacha is profound, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning or logic, to be experienced, to be realized by the wise. It is hard for you to understand this when you hold another view, accept another teaching, approve of another teaching, pursue a different training, and follow a different teacher. 
So here the Buddha is really showing how deep and sublime his Dhamma is. It's nothing just to sort of for the Buddha to explain in simple, clear words the answer to these deep questions and difficult questions. And then maybe Vachagota, since he's not yet really ripe enough to understand yet, he'll hear the words and then maybe argue with the Buddha or just um, just um, ponder and reflect and maybe go and meet some other ascetics and then say the Rikus Gautama says this or that. So the Buddha is really showing that in order to understand this Dhamma it's very difficult to grasp and to see and especially for somebody like yourself who has not yet even developed sadha or confidence in the Dhamma and has not yet become a disciple and has not yet started the course of training. Now the Buddha is saying you are following some other teaching perhaps. So it's not said that Bhatcha was actually um, a follower or a disciple of some other teacher. But in any way he might hold some other view and be committed to some other teaching and he's following some other training or discipline and so it will not be possible for him to understand this stuff. Okay, and now the Buddha is going to try to make the point clear to him by means of a simile. Okay, suppose, he says, a fire is burning before you. Would you know this fire is burning before me? And he says, I would, Master. And if somebody were to ask you, what does this fire burn in dependence on? How would you answer? And he would say, this fire is burning in dependence on grass and sticks, that is its fuel. And suppose that this fire were to become extinguished. Would you know the fire before me has been extinguished? And the word here for extinguished is nibhuta, which is also the word which is used to describe somebody who has achieved nibbana. So, Bhatcha says, if the fire were to become extinguished, I would know this fire before me has been extinguished. And then the Buddha says, if someone were to ask you, Bhatcha, when that fire before you is extinguished, to which direction did it go? Did it go to the east, to the west, to the north, or to the south? What would you answer? So here, this person is, or the Buddha has set up Bhachagota in a position of asking him four questions. And he has to choose one of these four questions. In which direction has the fire gone? Has it gone to the north, south, east, or west? And he's told, which of these four? You have to give one definite answer. And yet, how would he answer? The only way he could, he could answer is by saying that none of these alternatives apply. The reason is because when the fire is extinguished, it doesn't go anywhere to any direction. But rather, the fire burns in dependence on its fuel of grass and sticks. And when that is used up, if it does not get any more fuel, being without fuel, it is said to be nibhuta, extinguished. And so we might say that the simile applies to the 
nature of the enlightened one or to a living, let's say, a, a living being. A living being, you could say, is like a fire which is burning in dependence on the fuel of the five aggregates. The five aggregates are fuel. And it's also that fuel is kept, or that fire is kept burning by feeding it more and more fuel. And the act of feeding the fuel, of feeding the fire with fuel, we could say is like tanha or craving, or like upadana or clinging. And so in the case of the ordinary person, when he passes away, there is still this clinging or this craving or clinging, this craving for existence. And so through that craving or clinging, he grasps upon a new stock of fuel, another set of five aggregates, and he goes on burning. <laughs> so when the ordinary person passes away, then we would say, um, has he gone to the east, to the north, south, east or west? If one knows how to read where a person is reborn, one would say either to the north, the south, the east, or the west. We say, has he been reborn as a deva, a human being, an animal, as a hungry ghost or an elf, and he's been reborn there. And so in this case, you'll it's actually called in Pali Upadiyati, which means to take up. And it's from Upadiyati that one gets Upadana, which is both clinging, and also the word Upadana is used to indicate the fuel itself. And so the person, which is actually just a stream of becoming, a flux of becoming, arises from this fuel of the five aggregates. And what keeps the fire burning, we could say, is this craving or clinging. And as long as there's craving or clinging, <coughs> then the fire will go on from life to life. Or the as long as there's craving or clinging, then the so-called person or individual will go on from life to life just as the fire, as long as the fire is being supplied with fuel, it will go on burning. But in the case of the liberated one or the arahant, there is the end of craving or clinging. Craving and clinging are overcome and abandoned. And so that process of feeding the fire, of keeping the life process going, is terminated. And so the person, the liberated one, continues to exist as long as these five aggregates stand, because of the force of the life faculty and previous karma. But when the life comes to an end, then we say that the liberated one is Nibhuta, extinguished, or Parinibhuta, fully extinguished. Just as in the case of the fire, when its fuel is used up, it doesn't go anywhere, but it becomes extinguished. But it's also important to understand the simile of the fire properly. One has to realize that in ancient India, 
it was believed that when a fire goes out, it doesn't just mean that it's gone out, <laughs> but the fire, when it goes out, it's said to go to the indiscernible or indescribable state. That is, it returns to what's considered the universal fire element which is all-pervading and everywhere. It's not like in contemporary so-called scientific thought, we think when the fire goes out, it's just disappeared. But in Indian thought, fire was all-pervasive throughout the whole universe. And so when the fire is extinguished, then it returns to this unmanifest state where it cannot be perceived or discerned, where it's completely inconceivable and indescribable. And so when the fire of the liberated one goes out, it doesn't mean that he's completely annihilated or, to say, extinguished. Looks like he's not annihilated or destroyed, but he goes to the Nibbana element, the Anupadisesa Nibbana element, the element of Nibbana where there is no more um, existence of the five aggregates, no more residue of the five aggregates. I think we'll stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.